my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. As our brother Lindsay has reminded us, we left our class last time in the third chapter of Luke and at verse 17 where we considered John's warning for that generation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who was to separate the wheat from the chaff to gather the wheat into his garner but the chaff he would burn with unquenchable fire. The figure of the thrashing floor is one that is found in all parts of the word of God. Back in the book of Genesis in chapter 15 at verse 10 we read of, the, of a thrashing floor where, the, where Joseph and his household and his servants mourn for the death of Jacob. We go forward into the uh, book of Ruth and there we find in the book of Ruth we find that it was on a thrashing floor that, the, uh, that, that, that Ruth became revealed revealed herself under Boaz and Boaz pledged to redeem her from her slavery. We go forward into the book of Samuel and 2nd of Samuel chapter 6 and verse 6 we read that on the occasion when David set out to remove the ark up to Jerusalem and they moved it on a cart and Uzzah put forth his hand and was smitten dead. We find that he was smitten dead by a thrashing floor. We go a little further through the book of Samuel and we find that the, uh, we're introduced to the thrashing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, the place where David offered a sacrifice which stayed the plague that Yahweh had set through that nation and became the place where Solomon's temple was built upon the thrashing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. We read in the book of Daniel how Nebuchadnezzar's image is to be smashed to pieces and blown away as the chaff of the summer thrashing floors. We read in the book of Micah how in the future times the nation of Israel is going to be made as a new sharp thrashing instrument and that the nations of this earth will be thrashed and the chaff blown away and the gain consecrated to the, to the Lord of all the earth. And so the thrashing floor is a place of great significance in the scriptures and the thrashing floor was a place where the wheat was separated from the chaff. Speaking of the judgment that is to come, the separating out of that which is useful and profitable from that which is useless. The chaff actually does have a use and it does perform a purpose. But when the harvest is gathered, that purpose is completed. The purpose of the chaff originally is to protect the developing grain. It protects the, 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 the grain when the grain is soft and prone to damage. It protects it as that, that plant is growing and, and, and being brought to maturity. But once the, harvest, the, the crop is brought to maturity and harvested, the chaff has no more value whatever. It is absolutely useless. And that's why it's burnt with fire. And you see, that's the message of John to the nation of Israel at that time. Israel was a nation that Yahweh had chosen 
They were his chosen people. And in that nation was, was developed an environment where the truth could exist. And the truth could work in people's lives. But the time was coming when the harvest was to be gathered. And the little bit of grain was to be gathered out of that nation. And then the rest of it would have fulfilled its purpose. Have no more use whatever. And so the chaff was to be separated and burnt with fire. You see, we have a parallel in this in our own time, as we indicated at our last class. The ecclesia is, is uh, a God's called out people, just as Israel was Yahweh's ecclesia in the past. And within the ecclesia is, is developed an environment in which the truth can exist and the truth can work on people's minds and the truth can produce fruit in people's lives. But very soon, every member of the Ecclesia as an individual must stand before their Lord and Master. The purpose of the Ecclesia will be finished. The fruit will be gathered into his garner. But the chaff will have no more use and no more purpose and it will be burnt with fire. The Lord Jesus Christ went forth as a sower and he sowed the word of God in people's minds and that word of God is given that it might develop a character, that it might produce in us the likeness of that original seed that it might produce in us the reflection of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the wheat, that's the grain, that's the harvest. And everything else in us that does not reflect that likeness must be burnt with fire and rejected. But it is that which bears the likeness of the Son of God. It is that fruit that the word produces in us that the Lord is going to gather into his barn. You know, it was on the thrashing floor of Orn on the Jebusite that Solomon's temple was built. And there upon that thrashing floor was raised up the temple of Yahweh. You see, we are called, brethren and sisters, to be stones of a living temple. Vessels in whom Yahweh can dwell through his spirit and through the operation of his word working upon us and developing his likeness in us. You know, there upon the thrashing floor of Ornon the Jebusite and Ornon means, means strength. It signifies a strong one. The word Jebusite means downtrodden. He was a strong man but he was downtrodden. He had a thrashing floor. An altar was built upon that thrashing floor and later a temple was raised upon that site. It's a little parable of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. The Lord Jesus Christ was a strong one, but he was downtrodden. He was rejected by men. He offered himself as a sacrifice and became our altar. And upon that very foundation is to be built the spiritual temple of Yahweh. 
but it was built upon a thrashing floor. Because first of all, the wheat must be separated from the chaff. That which bears the likeness of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That which is truly built upon the foundation of his life will be gathered into his barn. They will become vessels, living stones of that spiritual temple that is to be built. Whereas everything else must be purged out. You see in verse 17 there, John speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ says, whose fan is in his hands and he will thoroughly purge his floor. Now the word thoroughly purge there, it's a word of diacatharizo, something like that anyway. Compound of two words, dia, which means through, and katharos, which according to Bullinger has this meaning. Pure from everything that would change or corrupt the nature of the subject with which it is combined. Free from every foreign admixture, whether good or bad. Clean and free from every stain, odour, colour, or anything useless, or any useless thing whatever. Free from every false adornment. That's what Bullinger says that word means. And it shows the tremendous purging uh, nature of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his people. He is going to thoroughly purge his thrashing floor. He's going to remove from, from that wheat, the harvest that he is to reap, everything that is in any way impure. He's going to make that which he gathers into his garner, absolutely clean and free from everything that would stain or any useless thing, whatever. And it emphasises the purging nature of Christ's work. And it shows us, brethren and sisters, the extent to which we should endeavour to allow the truth to work in us and to purge out from us now anything that is displeasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be purged out because nothing impure whatever will enter into the kingdom of God. We must go through that purging process. May it be that we go through it now and not uh, that, that we lose all when the Lord Jesus Christ stands again. And that verse 17 is a little emphasis to us of the way in which we should examine ourselves and to see whether our lives are truly built upon the example of the Lord Jesus Christ or not. It had an that verse had an application to Israel in John's day. It has an application to the ecclesia of today and it has a personal application in ourselves. And so we see that the, the uh, exhortation of John was indeed a very powerful one to the nation at that time. And as we indicated in our last class from verse 18 we see that the things that we presented here in, in, in the Gospel records of the teaching of John 
And no more than a little summary of the things he really spoke. Verse 18 says, And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But we have been given sufficient, a sufficient summary to give us an idea of the type of teaching and exhortation that, that, that John the Baptist delivered unto the people in endeavouring to prepare them for the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we go through Luke chapter 3, we find that actually verses 19 and 20 are actually subsequent to verses 21 to 23. It seems here that Luke has inserted them here to carry us right through to the, to the ultimate end of John's ministry. Verses 19 and 20 read, But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all that he shut up John in prison. Well, we know obviously that those verses are subsequent to verses 21 to 23. In actual fact, they should fit in in the Gospel of Luke in the, uh, around Luke chapter 4 and verse 14, between 13 and 14 probably. When we go to um, the Gospel of John chapter 4, we, read that it, we learn that it probably was not long after the trial of temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return back to Bethabara and then his departure up to Samaria and Galilee. It was not long after his return from the temptation that John was actually cast into prison. Now in John chapter 4, we read, in, in um, uh, reading from verse 1, we read, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptised not, but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Uh, and, and he must needs go through Samaria. So we find here that, that um, Jesus learns uh, that the Pharisees have heard that, that, that he is baptising more disciples than John. And he leaves Judea and departed again into Galilee but on the way he went through Samaria. And of course we know John chapter 4, how he meets the woman at the well and, uh, and so on and so forth. But that was after he left Judea and he's tra- travelling up to Galilee and he goes through Samaria. Now we go to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. And we learn here that now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So see, Jesus is down in Judea, he's been in the wilderness, he's he's, uh, uh, had his temptation, he's returned back into Judea, Uh, he hears how the Pharisees hear that he's baptising more people than John is, because John himself had said, he must increase, but I must decrease. So Jesus moves out of Judea, he goes up to Samaria and on into Galilee. Now we read in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1 that after John was put in prison, Jesus arrived in Galilee. 
So it probably wasn't a great period of time elapsed there before John was cast into prison. And we find then that, that John's imprisonment by Herod chronologically fits into Luke chapter 4 uh, between verses 13 and 14. <coughs> but we find that Luke has put these verses in here to show us the ultimate treatment that John received from that generation. Those verses show us another little indication of the tremendous courage that John had. John was no respecter of persons at all. Herod was the reigning monarch of that territory. But that didn't deter John for reproving him from the evil of his ways. And John spoke out boldly and forthrightly, telling him that he was that he should not have his brother Philip's wife. And Luke adds here, in verse 19, for all the evils that he had done. So just as John had scathingly reproved the Sadducees and the Pharisees, so John likewise reproved Herod. It shows us something of the tremendous boldness and courage that that man had. And verse 20, of course, shows the the fate of that man because of his bold and forthright teaching. And he was shut up in prison and of course as we know he ultimately lost his head. And that was the treatment that John received of that generation. But that of course takes us right to the end of John's life. Verse 21 now takes us back to the time when John is at Bethabara baptising the people that came unto him. Now Luke chapter 3 verse 21 says uh, Now when all the people were baptised it came to pass that Jesus also being baptised and praying the heaven was opened. You see during the time that John was baptising and uh, uh, reproving the people, exhorting the people People were coming to him to be baptised into the baptism of repentance toward the remission of sins. While all this was going on down there, the Lord Jesus Christ was up in Nazareth making the final preparations for the commencement of his ministry. There's not a shadow of a doubt that up in Nazareth that the Lord made these final preparations. He would have heard of John's preaching. The voice of John uh, went right throughout the length and breadth of that land. The Lord would have certainly heard of the preaching of John. He would have known that the time for his ministry to commence had come. He would have known from the uh, prophecy of Daniel. In chapter 9, he would have known of the time periods in Daniel chapter 9. The prophecy of the 70 weeks. We see that the, uh, that the um, latter part of that prophecy in verse 27 or verse 26 says after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. But verse 27 and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause sacrifice and oblation to cease. 
and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolator. It's the first part of that verse but it's particularly applicable to the time in the Lord's life that we are looking at. It says he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the terms of that prophecy, one week was seven years. And as the uh, Septuagint version, I think it is, renders that part in the midst of the week, it renders it in the latter half of the week. And as Brother Thomas points out in Elpis Israel and other places, he points out that that seven-year week there in which the covenant was confirmed was the time period which embraced the ministry of John and the ministry of Christ. And it was in the end of that week that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the sacrifice and accomplished the uh, terms of that verse in the book of Daniel. Now the Lord Jesus Christ would have been very much aware of those prophecies and as he heard of the work of John down in the south, he would have known that John's ministry would last for three and a half years and that his own ministry would last for three and a half years and then at the end of that three and a half years he would be cut off. And so as the Lord Jesus Christ heard the reports of John's work and John's preaching down at Bethabara, he would be very, very conscious that the time for his ministry to commence had come. But see, down there in the south, John's baptising. And John is completely ignorant of who the Messiah was. John knew that the Messiah was there somewhere in that nation and was about to be manifested to that nation. But he didn't know who he was at that time. You see, John chapter 1 and verse 31 shows us that. Um, John chapter 1 and verse 31. Well, verse 30 to get the context is, This is he of whom I said, After me <coughs> cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be manifest to Israel, Therefore am I come baptising with water. So John didn't know who the Messiah was, but he knew that through the medium of his baptism it was to be revealed to him who that Messiah was. Now, Brother Robert Roberts in uh, Nazareth Revisited, uh, actually we reproduced this on the sheet that was given out last time, but we didn't quite get there last time. I think it's page 35. Page 35 of Nazareth Revisited. He says, It was probably a divinely contrived thing that John should be ignorant of the Messiahship of Jesus. Had he known it, he would have been certain to have proclaimed his knowledge. And thus the testimony to Christ would not have rested on that wholly divine foundation that was essential it would have appeared to rest on a human foundation. John, as a relative, might have been suspected of the partiality of kinship and thus confidence in the testimony to Christ would have been imperfect at the start where it was necessary that there should be no flaw. 
When we realised how unspeakably important it was that the claims of Jesus as the long-promised Messiah should not rest on either his own testimony or on that of any man, we get a glimpse of the purpose served by John's ignorance of him. John was as helpless as any in the crowd on the subject of who and where the expected one was. He could not point him out. He knew he was among them. This had been revealed to him by the word of God which came to him in the wilderness of Judea. There standeth one among you whom ye know not, and I know him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptising with water. You see, now Brother Roberts shows us the, the wisdom of divine ways in the fact that the identity of the Messiah was hidden from John. Now, John had known that it was Jesus of Nazareth up in Nazareth that was the Messiah. Straight away, as soon as he started his preaching, it had been said to him, what the Messiah is up in Nazareth? And for three and a half years, people would have known that the Messiah was up in Nazareth before he was actually manifested in their midst. And you see, and then it would rest upon the testimony of John. Was John right or was he wrong? After all, Jesus up in Nazareth, John's own cousin. And so we see that the whole thing would have, there'd have been an element of doubt and uncertainty about whether that was the true identity of the Messiah or not. And so it was divine wisdom that kept John in ignorance of the actual identity of the Messiah at that time. And so you see, John is down there baptising the people day after day. John probably knew by now too that the time was getting very, very close when the Messiah must be manifested. He would have known too that seven years would have been involved. And so he would have been going about his work day after day with great expectancy. Am I going to be, see the Messiah today? Is the Messiah going to come before me today or not? As John started his work every day, those must have been the thoughts that pressed upon his mind. And so the time came when Jesus was to move out of Nazareth. Now in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9 we read, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised of John in the Jordan. Uh, Matthew, likewise, records it in very similar words. And so we see that when the, time, the, 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 the fullness of time came, the Lord Jesus Christ strode out of Nazareth, setting his face toward Bethabara. His responsibilities in Nazareth had been fulfilled. He'd met his responsibilities to his younger brothers and sisters. By this time, they too would have been grown to an age where they could uh, fend for themselves and stand on their own feet. And the time had come for the Lord Jesus Christ to commence the work for which he had been born. And we see him striding out of the city of Nazareth, down the plain of Estrelon, down to the Jordan Valley, and then down the Jordan Valley, right down to Bethabara, just at the north end of the Dead Sea. It was a downhill journey all the way. 
Nazareth is a, is a town approximately a thousand feet above sea level. Bethabara was probably upwards of a thousand feet below sea level. So the Lord Jesus Christ would have been going down, down, down that Jordan Valley to Bethabara. And as he strode down that Jordan Valley, he was following the course of the Jordan from the Sea of Galilee, that freshwater sea which was teeming with life. He'd be following the Jordan down as it went down, down, down to the, to the depths of the Dead Sea. The very river that in itself was a parable of mortality. A parable of man's descent from life down to death. And the Lord Jesus Christ would be following that, the course of that river down to Bethabara. And so he arrives at Bethabara, the place where John is baptising. Now Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 reveals an interesting thing to us. Luke chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Now when all the people were baptised, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptised. Now when all the people were baptised. This doesn't mean that John had baptised all the people that were going to come to him to be baptised and then baptised Jesus and his work was finished. You see, John carried on baptising people after he had baptised the Lord. So it's not referring, when it says when all the people were baptised, it's not referring to the whole work and mission of John. It's merely revealing what happened on that particular day. And you know, it tells us quite a lot about the type of person that the Lord Jesus Christ was. He went down to Bethabara to the place where John was baptising. And he waited until last. He let everybody else go first. Now it would have been so easy for the Lord on that day to get down there before John and to be filled with his own importance and to push in front of everybody else and say, well look, I'm the Son of God. John's baptising is the very purpose of revealing me to this nation. So just stand aside everybody while I go first. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. He just quietly stayed in the background and he let everybody else go first. He waited till last. You see, this is the type of vessel that Yahweh chose as the vessel through which he was to redeem the human race. It was to be one who pleased not himself but always sought the well-being of his brethren. And so when everybody else had gone and been baptised, Jesus stepped forward and stood face to face with John. And the climax of John's life had come. You know, others came and stood before John and they confessed their sins. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5. Well, Matthew 3 verse 6 tells us that. Mark chapter 1 and verse 5 we read. 
And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptised of him in the river of Jordan confessing their sins. See, others came before John and confessed their sins. And they stood before him and pledged to endeavour to change their way of life. But now there was a man standing before him who had no sins to confess. There was a man standing before him now that had no need to change, change his way of life in any way whatsoever. And this would have become apparent to John as they spoke. And so we find John's reaction in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 3 and at verse 14. For as John spoke to this man that stood before him, as he looked into his face, as he could see the genuineness and the sincerity of that man, he realised that no ordinary man was standing before him. This was no ordinary man that had come before him. And so we see in, in verse 14 of, of, of Matthew chapter 3, John's reaction, where it says in verse 13, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan, unto John to be baptised of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me? You see, and as, they, as John and the Lord Jesus Christ met, possibly for the first time in their life, and as John looked into the face of Jesus and listened to the words that came out of Jesus' mouth, he realised he was no ordinary man, and that preacher who had scathingly rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees was now humbled before him. And we can appreciate how John would have been humbled and, and, and felt conscious of his own unworthiness to perform this duty upon the man that stood before him. And so John tries to prevent the Lord Jesus Christ, to hinder him from being baptised, as that word forbade means. He hindered him. He was pointing out to him that, that, that well, John needed to be baptised of him, that he was utterly unworthy to baptise such a one as he. But in verse 15, we have the answer of the Lord Jesus Christ to the position that John finds himself in. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ pointed out to John that it was necessary that he be baptised, not for the confession of any particular sins that he had committed, but for the purpose of fulfilling all righteousness. He pointed out to John that it was absolutely necessary for him to submit to that rite of baptism at that time as an act of submission and obedience. Now, once again in uh, <coughs> Nazareth Revisited, on page 85, Brother Robert Roberts shows us 
why it was that Christ had to be baptised. We reproduced that on on the sheet there. But we read in this paragraph on page 85, but why, it has been asked, should he who was sinless be called upon to submit to an institution which was for the remission of sin? We need not ask this question. It is sufficient if God required him to submit to it. But the question will be asked, rejoins the curious, and there ought to be an answer. Well, and there is an answer. Although Jesus was not a transgressor by his own action, he was a partaker, for the time being, of a sin constitution of things. He was born into a state that was evil because of sin. And he partook of all the evil of that state, even unto death itself, working in the nature he bore as the son of Mary. It was open to... It was to open a way out of that evil state for man that he was made of a woman under the law. The way had to be opened conformably with the divine principles involved. A beginning had to be made with himself as the foundation on which other men could build. In the first instance, as the son of David, the son of Abraham, he was as much subject to the reign of death established in Adam's race by sin, as any of those he came to redeem. His mission was to break into this reign of death by obedience, death and resurrection, illustrating and establishing God's righteousness in all its bearings. For his sake, men's sins were to be forgiven. Therefore, he was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. In view of all this, it was not incongruous. On the contrary, it was a beautiful harmony with his work that on the threshold of a public phase of it, he should be called upon to submit to a ritual act which symbolised the putting away of sin. Now, Brother Roberts there shows us exactly why the Lord Jesus Christ had to be baptised. In that last sentence it says he was called upon to submit to a ritual act which symbolised the putting away of sin. And although he'd never committed any actual transgression, he was the bearer of a sinful nature which had to be repudiated and which had to be put to death. You see, Christ's baptism was a foreshadowing of his death and resurrection. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke and at verse 50 we read (coughs) But I have a baptism to be baptised with and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? So here's the Lord Jesus Christ long after he'd been baptised by John, saying, I have a baptism to be baptised with. And how am I straightened? Well, the margin is, how am I pained? The word literally means pressed together until it be accomplished. And there is, because he's speaking of his death. And that baptism was typical of that death. It was a foreshadowing of his death. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it was necessary for him to submit to the baptism of John uh, in, in acknowledgement of the righteousness of God in condemning sinful flesh to death and in, acknowledge, in, in uh, expressing his willing acceptance uh, to, to, to submit to the suffering and death that he knew was, he was destined for. of the righteousness of God in demanding his death in that way and an acknowledgement of his willing submission to the requirements of Yahweh in that way. We see really the Lord Jesus Christ here was putting himself to death. He was emptying himself of himself. Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10. We read of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8. <coughs> Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm sorry, we should have read verse 7. But but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. You see that word of no reputation in verse 7 means to empty himself. He emptied himself and took upon himself the, and took upon him the form of a bondslave was made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself of himself and he made himself a bondslave under Yahweh. There was not a moment of his life was spent in service to self. Not a word he spoke or an act he performed was done for the service of self. He completely emptied himself and became the bond slave of his father in heaven. And that was what he was submitting to when he put himself to death at the hands of John in the river Jordan. Really it was a confession of that principle in Psalm 40. The 40th Psalm, a psalm which speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it says in verse 7 of that psalm, Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Verse 7 in uh, uh, Rotherham renders it, um, then, then said I, Lo, I am come in the written scroll it is prescribed for me to do thy good pleasure, O my God, is mighty life. And that was the, the uh, uh, state of mind of the Lord Jesus Christ as he 
said to John, Suffer it so to be now. For thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. And then he suffered him. And so John and the Lord Jesus Christ go down into the water of the Jordan. And there John baptises him. Going back to Luke chapter 3, again we find that Luke adds an interesting little detail to the record of the other Gospels. Luke chapter 3 verse 21 Now when all the people were baptised, it came to pass that Jesus also, being baptised and praying, So you see, the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the hands of John, John buried him in the waters of the Jordan and and, and rose him out again. And while the Lord Jesus Christ went through that ritual act, Luke tells us that he was praying. You know, Luke gives particular emphasis on prayer in his Gospel. You see, because it is Luke that presents the Lord Jesus Christ as a man. Matthew presents him as a king. Mark presents him as a servant. But John presents him as the word made flesh. But Luke presents him as a man. And here we see him as a man, conscious of his own weakness, conscious of the weakness of the constitution that he bore and drawing strength from from, uh, the Father in the heavens. Luke gives emphasis on prayer. You see, on the records of the transfiguration, it is Luke alone that tells us that when Christ went up into that mountain and was transfigured before his disciples, he was up there praying. Luke alone tells us here that when the Lord Jesus Christ was buried in the waters of baptism, he was praying. And repeatedly through his gospel record, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ engaging in prayer. And we see him as a man conscious of the weakness of his constitution but drawing strength from his heavenly father in the act of prayer. We can perhaps contemplate something of the things that were in the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ at this very time as he was buried in the waters of the Jordan looking forward to the sacrificial death that he knew he must suffer drawing strength from his heavenly Father, that he might be able to bear with the trial that he knew must lay before him. And then as he rises out of the water again, typical of his resurrection from the grave, we can imagine how he would have rejoiced over the glories of the future age, and of that which is to be accomplished through his sacrificial death, life and death. And these, these things would have been uppermost in the mind of the Lord as he was buried in the waters of that Jordan. And he was engaged in his mind in prayer to his Father in the heavens. Now in going back again then to, to Mark, chapter 1, we read in verse 10 of Mark chapter 1, The words in Matthew are very similar in the authorised version, though in the actual Greek different words are used. Verse 10 of Mark chapter 1 says, And straightway, coming up out of the water, 
That word strikewise is a word that's characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. So it's, a, it's a word really which means immediately, straight away. And it indicates that immediately the Lord Jesus Christ came up out of the water that certain things happened. The word in Matthew is a different word but it, it means the same, it means forthwith. So that it, it, Matthew, and, uh, Matthew and Mark indicate to us that immediately the Lord came up out of the water certain things happened. We find that Matthew, Mark and Luke all combine to tell us that as he came up out of the water the heaven was open. But once again it's Mark that tells it to us in slightly different language. In Mark chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 10 we read him straightway coming up out of the water he saw the heavens open. Now Matthew and Luke use a word there which just means to open. But Mark uses a word here, as your margin will show, which has a much stronger meaning. The margin here, I think, says cloven or rent. Actually the word means to split, to rend, to divide with violence, says Bullinger. It's the word that's used for the rending of the veil in the temple when the Lord Jesus Christ died. Uh, the, the, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. It's the same word used to describe that renting. So Mark says that as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens rent and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. I believe it's significant really that we have that language there in Mark. If we go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, we find in the... Uh, at a chapter of Isaiah, we find that there's uh, chapter 61, for instance, speaks to us of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the things that he was anointed for, to which we'll look in, in a few moments' time. But chapter 63 tells us of the future work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he returns to this earth. And then we find at the end of chapter 63 from verse 15 onwards, we find that Isaiah engages in a prayer to Yahweh. He says in verse 15, Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory, where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me, are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Yahweh, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. And so we see that through these verses Isaiah is lamenting the state to which the people had fallen. You know, and in verse 64 he goes on and he says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountain might flow at thy presence, and so on and so forth. And as Isaiah laments the, the uh, uh, condition of his nation and the way that the other nations of the earth 
had dominion over Yahweh's people at that time. In his prayer he pleads that Yahweh might rend the heavens, that he might come down, that he might execute judgment upon the earth, and that, 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 that Zion and Jerusalem and Israel might be elevated in the future. You know, Mark is showing us the beginning of the answer of that prayer. Mark is telling us that at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ commenced his ministry, the heavens were rent. They were rent asunder. And Yahweh's Spirit descended from heaven and abode upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ had just put the flesh to death, symbolically, in the Jordan. And there it was now indicated that the power that was to develop that perfect life and character was the power that came from heaven. The power of Yahweh's word which came from heaven. We, we see there that the heavens were rent and the, 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 the commencement of Yahweh's intervening in the affairs of man had begun. And Yahweh, first of all, was to provide a perfect sacrifice. He was to provide the Saviour which in due course of time would bring about the answer to that prophet's prayer that Israel's enemies would be destroyed out of the land, that Zion should be elevated, that Israel should be restored and Yahweh's glory should shine forth from that city to all corners of the earth. But first of all, the Messiah had to be provided. And Yahweh, the heavens were rent and Yahweh provided that perfect sacrifice that was to lead to the accomplishment of all those Things. And so he saw the heavens rent, we're told, and a spirit like a dove descending upon him. And Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all testify to this fact, that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. In fact, it was revealed to John the Baptist that this was the means by which the Messiah was to be made manifest. John chapter 1 and verse 32. John, uh, yeah, John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptise with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining, the same is he which baptises with the Holy Spirit. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all testified to the fact that the Spirit came down from heaven and abode and, and rested upon him and remained upon him. And by this way, Jesus of Nazareth was anointed by Yahweh. He became the, the, the Christ. He was anointed by Yahweh at that time. Now Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 tells us this. Now here we have Peter um, speaking in the house of Cornelius. Uh, now he says in verse 38 uh, how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. 
And so we see that by the means of that Holy Spirit coming down and resting upon him, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now we go back to Isaiah chapter 63 and we see the purpose (coughs) for which he was anointed at that time. Isaiah 61 rather, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61 and verse 1 we read prophetic words concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. The spirit of Adonai Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prisons of them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, uh, and so on. So you see, the prophet points out there that Yahweh anointed him to preach good tidings, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh. That's the purpose for which the Spirit of Yahweh rested upon him at that time. So we see from that that Yahweh anointed him as a prophet. He anointed him to preach good tidings and to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and so forth. And so when that spirit came and rested upon him, he was anointed as a prophet. You know, after his death and resurrection, when he was anointed with the spirit in the fullest sense, in that he was anointed with spirit nature, he was elevated to the right hand of the Father and made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that Paul points out in Hebrews that we we have a great high priest. So he was anointed as a priest at that time. And when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth to establish the kingdom of God, we know he will be anointed as a great king in the city of Jerusalem. So the Lord is prophet, priest and king. But first of all at this time he was anointed as Yahweh's prophet. He became established as Yahweh's priest and he will yet reign upon earth as Yahweh's king. And so there at the time of his baptism, Yahweh anointed him. The Holy Spirit came upon him. As John tells us in John chapter 3, he was given the Spirit without measure. We see the purpose of that, that anointing there in Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 and 2. And John tells us in John 1 and verse 33 that that spirit descended upon him and it remained upon him. And so it remained upon him throughout the the period of his ministry. Now Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke all tell us that when that spirit descended upon him it descended upon him in the form of a dove. Luke tells us in the bodily form of a dove. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. Descended in the form of a dove. Now the dove was a clean bird 
It was used in sacrifice. The dove and the pigeon were of the same family. They were the only birds used in sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, the Lord says, Be harmless as doves and as wise as serpents. We find that in, in, in the sacrificial, uh, of the, the, the use of the bird in sacrifice, it was typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was typical of the, the innocence and perfection of Christ's character. We find, interestingly, that the dove is used in the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 12, for example, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, we read, His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His eyes are as the eyes of Dove. As the eye is an indication of, 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 the, of the character and of, of the, uh, the mind of the person. So we see the Lord Jesus Christ was to manifest the characteristics of the dove, the, 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 the meek, mild, harmless, innocent characteristics of the dove were to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we go to such places as chapter 1 and verse 15, we find these words spoken of the bride. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. So the same characteristics that are in the Lord Jesus Christ are to be found in his bride. And they're symbolised there in the Song of Solomon as a characteristic of the dove. You know, Yahweh used the dove as a symbol of Israel. Hosea, chapter 7, verse 11, speaks of, 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 of Ephraim as a dove. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. And here's a, a, a dove being silly, which doves tend to do if they are frightened or panicked. But nevertheless, we, the point we want to make is that Israel is symbolised here as a dove. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 8, we see that Israel in the future will be symbolised by the dove. <coughs> in Isaiah chapter 60 and at verse 8, we read, Who are these that fly as a cloud and as doves to their windows? And that's speaking of the, of, of, of the restoration of Israel in the future time, as doves that fly to their windows. And so there's this Israel. Yahweh used the dove as a symbol of Israel, of his people. And of course, as we learn from the prophecy of Isaiah, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the ideal Israelite. He wasn't a silly dove. He manifested the characteristics of the dove. You see, and in his first advent, being baptised with the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, the dove being a symbol of peace and harmlessness. The Lord Jesus Christ came with the gospel of peace. He proclaimed liberty. 
He brought a message of peace to the people who would hear him. And so the dove was very fittingly symbolising his character and the character of of the mission that he had come to perform at that particular time. You know, it's interesting in the Song of Solomon, his eyes are like the eyes of a dove in his relationship between himself and his bride. But we're told in many places of the scriptures where we have symbols of his second advent that he will have eyes like a flame of fire. And so we see the two different characteristics of the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ there. He came with a message of peace to Israel but they rejected him. But when he returns to a godless world he will come in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. And so the symbol of the dove is very appropriate to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first advent. But we do not, we must remember that when he comes back to the world the second time he comes in flaming fire executing the vengeance of God upon a godless world. But at this particular time as he set upon his his ministry which was to lead to his ultimate sacrifice and death as a perfect sacrifice under Yahweh, the dove, that sacrificial bird, was the fitting uh, symbol of all that that first mission stood for at that particular time. Now it's also interesting from another aspect too that it was the dove that Yahweh uh, chose to to, uh, identify him with at that particular time. Because the word dove in the Hebrew is the word Yonah or Jonah as we uh, have it in our Bible. And Jonah of course was one of the prophets of Israel. And Jonah was a man, it was a prophet which came from Galilee. We all know the story of Jonah. How he went on a journey on a ship and a tremendous storm rose up. And that the people on that ship might be saved, Jonah had to be thrown over into the sea. You see, typically he, he, he was put to death, he suffered death. But a big fish came along and swallowed him up and for three days and three nights he was in the belly of that fish typical of the Lord Jesus Christ in the grave and then at the end of that three days and three nights he was um, coughed up onto the beach and he went and preached the gospel unto the Gentiles. You know there was a parable of the whole life of the Lord Jesus Christ a prophet from Galilee. He had to be put to death that he might save those that were on the ship. He was three days and three nights in the grave. He was resurrected from the grave and through the medium of his servants, the apostles, the gospel was preached unto the Gentiles. And of course, through the preaching of Jonah, Assyria was preserved and ultimately judgment came upon Israel. And the Lord Jesus Christ raised to the right hand of God. The gospel was preached to the Gentiles and judgment was brought upon the nation of Israel in that the Romans were brought down to destroy it. And there with that dove coming down upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ it was a testimony that the sign of the prophet Jonah was about to be fulfilled. 
Here was a prophet from Galilee. He strode down from Galilee. Mark is careful to point that out to us. He says he came from Nazareth in Galilee down to the Jordan and then the dove came down upon him. He he came from Galilee. He was to die a sacrificial death that he might save others. Three days later he was to raise from the dead. He was to be elevated to the right hand of the Father. The gospel would be preached to the Gentiles and judgment would come upon Israel. You know, the people, the nation, didn't understand the sign. They said, look, no prophet comes from Galilee. How can this man be the Messiah? They failed to perceive the sign of the prophet Jonah. We find that... that, um, Not only did the dove descend upon the Lord Jesus Christ at that time, but again Matthew, Mark and Luke all combined to tell us that a voice spoke from heaven also. Verse 11 of Mark chapter 1. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now the dialogue renders those words somewhat differently. It renders those words, as we put it on the sheet there, Thou art my son, the beloved, in thee I delight. And that voice came from heaven. And if there, there, I don't believe there could have been a plainer testimony given at that time that this man is the Messiah. You know, as we take each statement there, we find that the, the, the voice from heaven is selecting Old Testament prophecies and focusing them on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, take the first statement, Thou art my son. It takes us really right back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The seed of the woman. And how was the, how was the seed of the woman going to be produced with the man cut out of the picture? Only by divine intervention that seed of the woman would be God's son. You know, we go through to the, the covenant with David, 2 of Samuel 7 and verse 14. Uh, he, I will be his father, he shall be my son. You know, Psalm 2 verse 7. Uh, <coughs> Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And they're all things that were pointing forward to the Messiah of Israel. And now here's a voice from heaven saying, This is my son. And John, as he says in in that first chapter of John, John himself testified that this indeed is the Son of God. So thou art my son, the beloved. You know, take their minds back to, to Isaac. As, as, as Abraham's beloved son, his only begotten son whom he loved, that was to be offered as a sacrifice. But it takes our mind also into the book of his, his books of Ezekiel and Hosea. Uh, we haven't time to look at all those now, but we'll just look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24. Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, and I will set up one shepherd over them, 
and he shall feed them. Even my servant David, or the beloved, he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, Yahweh, have spoken it. And we know that there's other places in Ezekiel and in the prophecy of Hosea where it is foretold that David, that my servant David was to be a king over them in the future time. And David means the beloved. And now the voice from heaven says, this is my son, the beloved, the one who's going to be the shepherd of Israel in the future time, the one who's going to be the king of Israel, the one whom Israel is going to seek unto in the latter days. Here he was, now, standing on the banks of the Jordan, having stepped up out of those waters. And finally that voice says, In thee I delight. Words taken directly, almost directly, from Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, Mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment unto the Gentiles. And so on and so forth. And this introduces to us the individual servant of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who now stood upon the banks of the Jordan, Yahweh's spirit just having been put upon him. And the voice from heaven says, uh, Behold mine elect, in whom my soul delighted. And so all those prophecies were combined in that voice from heaven and there could not have been a plainer testimony that here is the Messiah of Israel, my son, the beloved, in whom I delight. But despite that declaration from heaven, brethren and sisters, three and a half years later, that generation crucified that very one. They rejected him because they couldn't endure the power of his exhortation. They couldn't endure the, uh, the, 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 the powerful words and reproof that he spoke under them at that time. May it be, brethren and sisters, that we might humble ourselves, that we might accept his words, that we might be found approved of him in the time when he returns to this earth.